Welcome to the Valaran Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. This is Benjamin Carsage. I'm Aaron Smith. And I'm Chris Vaughn. Thanks for listening. Let's get rolling. Hey, welcome back to the Valarum Perspective. So today we have a really, uh, it's a topic that's been on my mind for some number of years. It popped up way back in the day when I was at Riot, and it was something related to how we orient so naturally towards problems as people in companies and leaders in companies. Um, there, I, I just, just was talking and working with teams and I realized that everything that we were focusing on was how do we solve this? Okay, how do we, what, what do we want to solve? In a retrospective, questions like what are the problems we're trying to solve? Product, what were the problems we were trying to solve? And I realized that there's a framing, there's like an, a mindset or approach to that that is, it's not bad, it's not like that's not important, but it felt incomplete to me. And uh, I don't remember if it was an article I read or something happened, but I started reframing that in, in my own mind and as I talked to my team to be, what are the problems you're trying to solve or the opportunities you're trying to unlock? And that shift in thinking, um, what does that mean for a team when suddenly it's not just about fixing what's broken, it's also about expanding what's possible. Um, and and so anyway, uh, Aaron and I were talking a bit about this yesterday and I wanted to, to dive into that in today's uh, Valarin Perspective episode. Yeah, and I think one of the things that makes this an interesting topic is because this, a lot of the things we talk about loosely relate to incentives and behaviors and the sort of systemic soup of influences and how they drive us towards different places, even if those aren't places we want to go. So we, we, we've been talking about in this paradigm that Ben's referring to leading versus managing. Like those are two different things. We don't necessarily need to go into them in detail now, although we might dig into it a little bit in this episode, but leaders by archetype and by behavior and by influence are different than managers and the stuff that they do is different. So how often do we find ourselves in a situation where we're not deliberately saying, hey, you folks, you're going to be the leaders and that's important and here's why. And you folks, you're going to be the managers and that's important and here's why. We somehow actually usually end up in a situation where everyone's just managing. Yeah. And why does, and why does that happen? And that's kind of what we're talking about today is trying to understand the influences and forces that pull us in those different directions. And to, and to kick things off, uh, ben and I were just talking about this idea of, and I, and I don't know if this is a good metaphor, but it's a metaphor that comes into my mind because it seemed very relevant as a leader in software development from, from the things I've seen. You live in this house and it's a house that has a very specific structural design. The rooms are arranged a certain way. You chose your wallpaper. You chose your floors. It's got a, you know, it, it's got a certain resistance to fire and flood. Like all that's built in. It's all baked into the cake. And when we're in problem solving mode, we so easily get to this place where we're always trying to remediate anything wrong with the house back to its original design. And rarely are we ever trying to expand and think about what it might look like to live in a bigger house or maybe a smaller house or maybe five houses is better or maybe a ranch is better. Like we don't, there's a million other permutations that might actually serve systems that might serve us better, but we are 
allowing ourselves to be psychologically confined to the original design that we have. And when we get stuck in this maintenance, optimization, and reactivity mode, where we're always just trying to repair the existing house, we can't, we, we like lose our ability to see anything more. And I'll, I'll end that little tidbit there with saying that Ben and I have both been in many situations in the past where the, everyone's like, well, the system is broken and people aren't updating the spreadsheets and we don't understand why people aren't showing up to the meetings and this stuff isn't happening. And Ben and I are sitting there and looking and like this whole system sucks. Right. Yeah. Like <laughs> no one's showing up to the, no one's showing up to the meeting because like the, it's not the meeting. It's not room X in the house. It's like the house sucks and is not serving any of our needs. It's not delivering any of the value that we need out of a house right now. So of course people aren't participating, right? Yeah, and that that idea of how do I just fix what's already there that's so ingrained, you know, like the scarcity versus abundance was something we, we talked about um, a ton, that it's such a natural orientation to go through every day and to like in a retrospective ask that question, what are the problems? Okay, what, what got in our way? Um, and to not ask the question, where should we be? What's the goal? And in some sense, this problem orientation is exacerbated by the lack of clear and articulated vision um, that is so endemic. Like most companies struggle to clearly articulate vision uh, and have that disseminated throughout an organization. What are the goals? Where are we trying to go? And when you don't know what the vision is, it's hard to understand. I think you said it yesterday, Aaron. You were like, if you don't know what the vision is, you can't think of opportunities. Or if you are, it's almost just like, you know, throwing, like shooting in the dark, right? You're just blind firing and hoping you hit something if you decide to go into opportunities. But problems. Or man, it, this kind of house would be cool. It'd be cool to have another room. Right. Like, why? Why? Yeah. I don't know. See, it seems like it'd be cool. Yeah. And and I think that <laughs> that idea of like you're, you're either blind firing opportunities because you don't have a vision and a framework or um, you're just going like, well, in the absence of a vision, what do we focus on? We focus on the work. We focus on on the process. We focus on optimizing what is already present. Um, and that, by the way, for me, that's like one of the core things that a manager does. And it's something that managers should do is the optimization of a thing. But managers, if they're like, a, as I define it, a manager is rarely looking at broad change um, or almost never looking at broad change unless if that leads to an optimization of the system. That's what leaders do. And that is something that you have to be going, wait a minute, what if it could be better than it is today? You know, maybe we want, like you said earlier, maybe we want a house um, but maybe we want a palace or maybe we want a city. Um, and, and what would that look like to move in any of those directions? And even you could go in the other direction too and go like, maybe we just want a tree house for our house, you know, but even that it's outside of the confines that we tend to think about. And in the absence of knowing where we're trying to go, you don't know. You know, something that just struck me is there's this, the vision overlay, the vision and strategy overlay and how we regularly run into organizations and have ourselves been a part of organizations that are struggling with that, I think is very related to this. Uh, I think when you don't have a vision, you don't have a strategy, it's easy, it's, it's difficult to derive a sense of accomplishment, right? Because the goals are unclear. So you can't necessarily tie the work you're doing to a greater or meaningful or valuable objective. So if you don't have that strategy and you don't have that vision and the natural place to go is to be like, well, I know what the original design of the house looks like. And so if there's a hole in the roof and I fix the hole in the roof and the design is now more back to its ideal state, I can derive a sense of accomplishment from that, right? Like we, we had these bugs and we fixed them. 
you know, the, the players or the customers were complaining and we resolved their complaints. It's like we there's no bigger picture, but we did bring things back to equilibrium. And I think that that as human beings feels really good. Mm-hmm. It's it, it, when, when we're struggling to understand how to feel valuable and how to feel like our work has meaning. It's always a place if you can just go fix something. I mean, we do it around the house, right? Like if you're feeling kind of like a useless piece of crap and you felt lazy for the last like six weeks, if you go and fix your sink I do this all or the you time. go and clean up your house, like you're probably going to feel better afterwards than you did before <laughs> because you're it's, it's a little micro accomplishment. It's meaningful. Like things have gone more back to their placid ideal state. You know? There's there's something and I, I'm going to go on a tangent. We'll see how this comes out. Um, so oh god yeah you're (laughs) um so when you were talking about it it made me think about the idea of comfort and stability and how we want that like we want comfort and stability and in a lot of the work that we do like we talk about this a lot in knowledge work in empirical spaces when we're doing creative things there isn't stability of what the product is and there isn't stability in the environment. Even the company is changing. People are joining and leaving. The company's goals may be shifting, sometimes glacially, sometimes really rapidly. And we want that comfort. And so we're constantly looking to repair the house. We're constantly looking to solve the problem. But the orientation, if you overorient towards solving the problem, what you're actually doing is stultifying and stagnating your organization over time because you're not going, what should we be? What, how has the world changed? How should this product behave? Um, instead, we say, here is the feature list that we got. Let's make sure we get all these things done. And if we run into problems, I, as a good team leader, am going to make sure we resolve those problems. But I'm not going, is this actually a good product? Um, and the, the reality of uncertainty, the reality of chaos and change as ever-present forces in the modern world, be it technology or, or honestly, it's going everywhere with the rate of change that's occurring in, in just about everything. All of that pushes towards a world where simply solving problems is insufficient. You have to be willing to look at opportunities or you are, it's, it's not like you're going to stop being able to solve the problems. It's that the one, the problems are going to start magnifying as your system no longer matches a changing reality. So it's going to start becoming out of sync with reality. And two, that's going to eventually obsolete you. Um, and if the only thing you've done is trained people to to solve problems, then um, you're, you're going to end up out of business. Ben, you brought up a point <clears throat> earlier, actually off the air, but I found it fascinating, so fascinating that I want to revisit it and bring up something you had talked about. You talked about during the retrospectives, Mm -hmm. you got to a point where instead of just asking, what are the problems? You began asking, what are the problems and what are the opportunities? What are the places for us to explore? What, you know, how could we venture forth? Um, What happened Hmm. on your teams? I'm curious to know what happened on your teams. What was the result? If you can think about the before when it was just what are the problems and the after when you introduced this sort of scintillating possibility of opportunities out there. What Was there a positive outcome? Well, I, you know, it's hard for me to localize. Like I'm thinking back to around the time when I started introducing this new frame and there were a lot of things that were always changing on the teams I was on. Um, so I, I can't, I, I wish I had like a really clear answer, like, yes, it got so much better. And I don't, um, I, 
I do think that the flexibility of the teams improved dramatically. Um, their ability to grapple with whatever the, uh, a, a changing vision might be, um, whatever the, oh, even if it was just the same old existing vision, how we would like tackle it, um, improved. Uh, and I, I believe that led to a healthier culture that led to better results. It was in some sense indirect, um, because what, what you, I did with that shift towards opportunities, how best, how else could, could we achieve this vision? How else could we achieve this goal? Um, it, it was actually a lot about exploration and learning, um, and, and less about, because it's not concrete. It's not, here's a problem, let's solve it. It's here's a space. And if we unlock it, one of the, one of the other reasons we don't like unlocking opportunities is because it's opening a door with a bunch of unknowns in it. Mm -hmm. And there are a bunch of problems that exist inside of it. Now there's a guy I know, uh, Andrew, and he is, I think one of the best opportunity finders I've ever known. Um, uh, and he was a product manager and a designer in by, by trade. Um, I worked with him on uh, the Summoner's Rift update project on League of Legends, which is the rework of the main map. And Aaron actually also uh, encountered him and worked with him in some other spaces. Uh, one of the things that I would always see him doing, because he was just where everybody else, I think, naturally orients towards problems and is trained to focus on problem solving. He's this person who is naturally focused on the opportunity. Hmm. And he almost doesn't care about the problem. He's like, the problem, I'll, other people can solve the problem. Everybody's trying to solve the problems. That's not what I care about. I care about the opportunities. And he would show up into spaces. And, and so this is the closest I can do. And unfortunately, it's not a personal story. But he would show up into spaces. He would find out whether there was a vision or not. If there wasn't, he would generate one. If there was, he would ask the question, how best could we achieve this vision and these goals? And then he would completely shift how the team was operating. And by the way, people didn't like this a lot of the time. <laughs> like his focus towards opportunity was very disconcerting. In some cases, teams, we know how to do this. We know what's going on. We've refined, we've optimized, we have a good system and it works well. And he would come in and he would say, that's great. Glad you have a system that works well. We're not going to do that stuff anymore. So now we're going to do these other things and we have to build a system for that. And it was, it was disruptive and that, but to me, that is foundationally what a leader does. They see the opportunity and they change things to reach those opportunities because they reach the goals better. There's something really interesting that is a, a meta theme in what you're describing as well, which is our psychology and how we react towards problems. Again, the operational problems with preserving the existing house and how we react to the problems uh, or, the, or I guess maybe the, the problems and opportunities that are inherent in the uncertainty of, a, of something new. Mm -hmm. So what I hear in that story you just tell me is a guy comes in or a gal comes in who's like a real leader and she says, this house is wrong. We're going to go move. We're going to move to a different house. We're, we're going to build a new house and we're going to move to that house. And how threatening existentially that is to everyone that lives in that house. Like we would rather our house burn to the ground and rebuild it brick by brick exactly as it was before than we would move to a different house. Mm -hmm. so, there's some element of the human psychology yeah. that's really interesting there. And I think that that actually pushes us farther in this direction where we get operationally minded and we become, we become obsessed with 
execution and remediation and like, okay, how do we make, bring the system make, even if again, our system is so beyond repair from a achieving the goals point of view, we just keep propping it up over and over and just maintaining it. I think there's something very human there about clinging to the existing system, even when it's so past the point where it serves any of our objectives or we don't know what our objectives are. And so like that, that really, you know, a story um, that I saw that I've seen many, many times at different companies, but I saw a a really at Riot that Riot at times struggled with is um, Riot had one of the most powerful cultures uh, I've ever seen. And one particular element of it was the, uh, the heroic element. Like I, I, the, the, I still think back to the, the, to some of the stories where a group of individual contributors got together and said, we see a problem for players and we're going to fix it come hell or high water. And then would proceed to just annihilate the problem through sheer force of will and effort. Mm-hmm. I've never seen so many of those stories mm-hmm. at any place ever than I saw at Riot. What I found so fascinating though, was that became such a linchpin, I think at one point, even to the point where some of the leaders start going, oh, I don't know if this is like a great thing long-term as we scale. <laughs> that became such a linchpin of the culture that I feel I observed us creating those situations through negligence or uh, naivete so that we could then fix them. Because Mm -hmm. the idea of changing the system was so much scarier. The idea of flushing like all of our assumptions and starting from scratch was so much scarier than waiting for the system that we had to inevitably implode so that then we could then all dogpile it and fix it. In, in like one grandiose heroic maneuver that yeah. we, we you actually started to see patterns of that happening. Yeah. And, I, and I see this a lot in software, like that last 30% where we all like heroically get the thing over the finish line. And against all odds, we ship it. And it's sometimes it's still a little crappy, but we managed to hit the deadline, you know? And it's and to me, that's that is such a, a, a outcome of some of the patterns we're talking about. Where it's like, was there a system that could have just smoothly gotten us there? Well, I don't know. Did we talk about it? Like, could could we imagine it? And then could we actually incur the level of risk and uncertainty that would allow us to just shift our whole operating model over to something better? And I think that that's something that we all need to keep in mind because I think we are terrified of that uncertainty to the point where like, even if the risk is 10% of what it would be if the house burns down, we'd still rather the house burn down because we know how to solve that problem. Yeah. And you bring up a really good point. Um, question though. So let's pretend I am just Johnny Joe Blow, you know, scrum manager sitting out here in the field listening to this podcast. And I'm identifying with you guys and I'm going, man, I, I see some real differences between the way that I present my stuff or the way that, you know, it, is the stuff I'm presenting, you know, in line with the vision or is it not? Am I always focusing on the negative? My question to you is, say, you know, say you're down uh, just a scrim manager of an asset development team, mm-hmm. whatever discipline, you know, and you see something wrong there. You see something that's broken, that's not working. And yet the people above you are adhering, towing the company line, towing the vision. What can you do if you're noticing people focusing on the wrong things or entire organizations focusing on the wrong things? How do we present that in such a way that 
you know, it might it might evoke some change. Does that make sense? Do you see where yeah. I'm going? Yeah, I mean, so it really it's all context sensitive, right? It depends on the situation. Like if the company really does have a clear vision, that was the thing that stuck out to yeah. me about the scenario you just described. Mm -hmm. So like if the company really does have a clear vision, then presumably we can lean on that to get clarity, right? The system is either generating outcomes that are consistent with that vision or it's not. So like one thing that Ben always does that I love, um, it, it's like one of his little uh, annoying uh, like pokey things he does that really gets people in the right frame of reference, the right mindset is like, what's the outcome you're looking to achieve? What's the value? What's the value? If you ask that question enough times, it forces people to reckon with the possibility that the house might not actually be the house that you need to live in or that mm -hmm. the house might not be the mm -hmm. correct thing. So like if you're like a scrum master boots on the ground and you're like, you're seeing some of these incongruencies and you're like, ah, the system, this process we're using isn't really working. Um, you, you start getting people to discuss what outcomes we want to achieve. And then I think naturally over time, it will become clearer whether or not the existing infrastructure is serving those goals or not. I love the idea of not just, you know, what is the outcome, but what is the value? That's huge. Yeah. I love, mm -hmm. I love that, that when you just said that, Aaron, I know that it's Ben's idea. So I'm sorry, Ben, no, I'm totally getting fine. to you through totally Aaron. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. But I mean, getting to that concept though, that, that just reached out and grabbed me. That is huge because mm -hmm. it's not just, we always, we always talk about the outcomes. We always talk about the problems, mm -hmm. but the two, the two major takeaways I'm getting from this are what are the opportunities and yeah. what's the value in us pursuing that? That is huge. Can you guys elaborate on that? Um, I can, I want to actually tangent slightly. Uh, yeah. and, and go into, cause, cause I'm, I'm trying to again, think, okay, I'm practically, I'm a scrum master. I'm in a situation, uh, and th I see things that aren't going the way I want them to. Some, some stuff isn't happening correctly. And first plus one, everything Aaron said, second, uh, there is a, there are different types of vision. Uh, and I've gotten in debates around this. Most people, when they think of vision, think about product vision. What are the goals of the company? What's the impact you want to have on the customer? That sort of thing. And that's a super valuable vision. But as a scrum master or any like delivery lead, project manager, whatever it is, you also can... Any operational leader. Any yeah. operational leader, yeah. You can and are called to, I think, lead, not just manage. Uh, and part of leading is having an idea of where you're trying to go and what it is you do. And so something I would often encourage people that were boots on the ground is don't just run and maintain a process. You're going to fall into the problem-solving trap. All I do is I solve the problems with the existing process. What do you want this team to look like? What is your vision for what your space becomes? Do you know that? Um, and that's actually, that's not a... a, a trivial question because so often it's like, well, I want it to look like the process. I'm like, no, that's not the answer. What culture do you want on the team? How do you want them to relate to goals? How do you want them to relate to each other? How do you want them to relate to customers? How do you want interactions to occur inside of this space so that these people that you're accountable for leading are interacting with each other to produce maximum value for the customer while remaining engaged and able to do that sustainably over time. It's it's a not an easy thing and it's context specific. Are you a remote team? Are you half remote, half on site? Are you all on site? What levels of experience do you have? What types of problems? How many disciplines? All of these things may impact what your vision for what ideal is. And you're never gonna get there. The world will change 
and the ideal will shift faster than you can close the gap to 100%. But you can start down that path, create your own vision as an operational leader. Not a product vision. Yes, you can be involved in that depending on the organization. Maybe you have a lot of say in that. Maybe you do both. I don't know. Have a vision for what it means for this team to operate well and be human-centric and be oriented towards empowering individuals. Um, so that, that, was, that was my tangent. You're listening to The Valarin Perspective. I want to like me- do a little meta thing here. Uh, so you might hear us use the term bystand. And what we mean by that is it's, it's a facilitation stance, basically, which is to kind of step back from the conversation and reflect what's happening back to the room. It's like a powerful tool you can use in conversations to kind of pull people out of the, the chaos of, of the moment. But what I see happening right now is that we have really kind of described this problematic at times tendency for us to to revert to the mean if you will Mm -hmm. to like to constantly try to repair the house instead of finding a better vessel for our objectives and now we're starting to talk about like how to do that like what needs to shift or what needs to change in order for those opportunities to become more present and for you to unlock that ability and you just talked again about vision and i think what we're seeing is there's a theme there which is that clear vision and clear direction allows you to pull yourself out of the chaotic day-to-day process remediation conversation because the why question like why are we doing this process why is this meeting important why do we all need to fill out the spreadsheet those questions without any higher level context the answer is always going to be just fill out the damn spreadsheet just do it we have a spreadsheet everyone knows they need to fill it out Mm -hmm. just fill it out stop arguing but like if you if, if if it's a valid conversation for people to say well wait is this helping us deliver on our goals or this is this helping us get to where we want to get? That conversation will very quickly contextualize the spreadsheet in either a positive or, or negative light. And, and, and so I think another thing that we need to unlock, and this is actually where I see a lot of organizations choke up as well, is where leaders, I think, actually are very responsible Mm -hmm. in that they attach themselves to certain processes, certain reporting mechanisms, certain meetings for their own ends. And they're unwilling to allow those things to change or morph because they feel personally threatened by it. So an example would be a leader that has a meeting where all of his subordinates or all of her subordinates get together. There's, let's say there's 20 people and they all report on what they're doing. This is a great opportunity for that leader to find out everything that's going on because they're really busy and they don't have the time to talk to everybody. But maybe that meeting does not serve any of the objectives. Maybe it doesn't serve any of the people other than that one person. Is that leader actually really okay with the idea of that meeting disappearing? Mm-hmm. If the answer is no, And if the answer is no enough times, then people are quickly going to feel that the process is a constraining mechanism, that the framework that exists is hard and fast and cannot be changed. And they're going to get sucked into that remediation mentality. Yes. Well, how do I, how do I figure out how to make this work instead of, Hey, we shouldn't even be doing this. 
So I think one of the things in addition to vision to be able to pull out and have the higher level conversation is actually the ability and openness to change, starting with the leaders, the leaders exhibiting the behavior, which is, hey, if you see something, say something. And if something's broken and it's not serving our objectives, not only do I want you to bring it up, I need you to. I'm holding you accountable for bringing it up and I will support you in making that change and I will be the first one to kick out anything that's not serving our goals. Like that mentality is a set of behaviors that leaders can exhibit to really make a difference in this space and I, I have to admit, I don't see that as much as I would like to. And, and I think that that actually, I wish those leaders understood how much they're working against maybe their own objectives if they want an organization that's more adaptable. There's two things that came up, like traits of leaders. And one, I don't know if it's a trait really, but it's, do you view yourself as the servant of all the people you are leading? Because that is what you are, ideally. They are not there to serve you. You are there to serve them. And in, in most of the, the sort of modern tech world, the software development world, the actual work comes out of that lowest layer. Mm-hmm. They're like mm-hmm. nothing. The, I, I've said this before. I am not an addition to any company I go to. At, at, if I'm doing my job well, I'm a force multiplier. I'm helping other people do their work better, whatever that means, um, produce more value, whatever, whatever that looks like. Um, but I, I mean, very rarely and never to a high enough quality bar am I actually producing art assets or, or code or anything um, that's gonna go into any sort of live environment. So my job is to force multiply. And that means my job is to go, what is it that I could do that would help these individuals that are actually doing the work do it better, be more engaged, understand where we're trying to go more? Those are the questions I'm trying to ask. And the second thing, so that, that's one, is orientation as a servant primarily. And by the way, people get that confused. And I just want to clarify this. People think servant leadership means that somehow your job is to like show up to all team meetings and ask, is there anything I can do to help? And does anybody need coffee? And I brought donuts and they're by my desk. That That's just being a servant. Um, and that's not what you're called to. You're called to be a servant leader, which means that sometimes you're going to, in the best interests of what you're trying to do, in the best interest of the team you're leading, you're going to go and you're going to be really firm. You're going to be really harsh. You may be uh, authoritarian at times if necessary, if that's the best way to serve the team. But the framing is always, how do I serve them, not how do I get them to serve me? How do I solve their problems, not how do I get them to solve mine? Um, And so, so that's the first thing is the servant orientation. The second thing is humility. And that comes in when you were talking about somebody being willing to come up to you and say, hey, I don't think this meeting adds value. And you being open enough and receptive enough and not overconfident or not arrogant or not just oriented on self to be able to say, oh, let me, let me hear you out. Let me see what's, what, what you've got. And, and to be able to genuinely consider those ideas. Yeah, there, there could be less negligent reasons, honestly, to get caught in that trap as a leader. Sometimes it's that you feel that you need the current system to provide things for you that allow you to be successful in your job mm-hmm. because you feel accountable to the people above you, right? So that's true. It's, it's a, a lo- yeah, exactly. And a, lo- and a lot of times that those, those forces can pull you in opposite directions. And I... I just want to reinforce that 
these patterns are like cyclical and feed on each other in nature, right? Like if you want to, like, like right now I see a pattern in our industry, frankly, of operational managers being valued over leaders. Yeah. Like, and I, and I think you can actually break that down into very clear monetary terms, to be honest, like a, a, a very high level program manager. And it's not to say that all program managers are not leaders. There are many great leaders in the program management discipline. But to be a high-level enterprise tech program manager, you command a very handsome salary. Uh, but very rarely do I see these companies really focusing on the skills and techniques of leadership. There tends to be this like, okay, who can we get that can project manage the shit out of this thing and facilitate the work of the people getting out to the customers? Mm -hmm. Like create that pipeline through which the stuff goes to the people. And it's, and, and again, there is, even within that framework, there is this very much like we have a system, make the system, optimize the system, make it faster. We know what we need to do. And, and, and manage it and manage it. Yeah, we know what we need to do. Yeah. And, uh, and that I find interesting because I, I have run into a lot of project managers that I think want to be leaders, desire to be leaders, but that, that those qualities are not necessarily valued in them from their employers. So this is this goes back to the thing, if you are one of the people who's determining what is valuable or not on your team, celebrate and value those leadership qualities. And you will see more of that happening naturally. Yeah. And, and one of the things is, is like if somebody comes to you with a really good idea about how we can build a better system that much better achieves our goals, let them do it. Right. Figure out a way to to market that to the people that you're accountable to and let them do it. There's trust me, it's going to make less work for you and it's going to make them happier and feel more empowered and autonomous. And it's probably going to reach a result in better outcomes and make you look better to your superiors anyway, if you can weather the storm of that uncertainty. Yeah. You know, I'm there. There was um, and I want to see if I can connect these two things because they feel connected in my head. You were talking earlier about the heroic culture. Um. And, and one of the things you said is um, we almost like set up scenarios where we would need heroics. And I actually think it's one of those things that, I mean, if anybody's worked at a, at a company or on a team and they managed to, through those heroics, ship something and you had some leader who maybe wasn't as aware of what that was and how hard that was and how difficult it was, um, when you complete that thing successfully, the next time... They're like, well, I mean, you all seem great at solving problems. So I know you said you needed 12 months, but I think we could probably do it in six. And and right, and and to walk away and to just know they'll figure it out. They'll do the heroic thing. And what's <laughs> what's fascinating is part of that instinct is actually really good. Like part of the instinct of, look, there's constraints and they're too hard. And that as a team, I need you to figure out how to solve for this value um, inside of the constraints. And by being constrained, there is something that can happen where like people do go in and they, they have creative ideas and they're, they're challenged and they challenge each other to like, well, how could we do this better? How could we? And, and so part of that is good. But one of the traps I see is when we rely upon it, we re rely upon that as, as leaders and, and it's almost this like perverted version of empowerment um, 
where we've massively constrained the system and then we've said, figure it out. And then we just hope that they do. And we say, don't, and, and I mean, this happened um, at places I've worked. You're empowered. You're empowered to go solve it. And it's like, I know I'm empowered to go solve it because I would really actually love more direction and information from you. Instead, you just sort of handed me this very short document trying to explain where I'm supposed to go. And now I'm supposed to apparently use that with this team to fix everything um, magically. I, I realize I'm empowered. I would actually like a little bit more direction, vision, and engagement from you around this. Um, and, and so as that relates to the idea of like problems and opportunities, in some sense, there's this thing and we can use these teams as just giant problem solving bodies. Like as a, as a senior leader, it's like, oh, I've got, I've got a set of problems. I need to ship this by this time, or I've got this, or I need to move this KPI or whatever. And then I just, I'm not going, hmm, how do I work with the teams to create learning and opportunity so that these things become possible? Instead, I just push all of my problems down onto them and say, solve my big problem. Um, and they kill themselves doing it. And, and if they get it done, I just expect them to do it again. Um, and, and it's, again, I think it's a perverted version of empowerment. Um, there's like mm -hmm. a good, there's a potentially healthy instinct there. And so often it is abused. There is a very well-known game company out there, which I will keep anonymous for the purposes of our podcast, a well-known game company out there who shipped a super well-known game. And uh, the the amount of crunch they did on this title was was legendary. It is well known within the industry how much crunch went into this thing and how hard it was and how like people wound up in divorce court. People didn't see their kids. I mean, it was just, it was really bad. So after this shipped, the parent company said, well, you did meet our goal. Well, that's cool. We want you to do another one and we're going to give you this much time instead. And the game company went, we, look, just because we did it once doesn't mean we can do it again. It, we, we did it once at great cost internally. Mm -hmm. And the parent company said, well, we want you to do it again. And the members of the game company revolted, essentially. <laughs> they revolted against, I mean, all the management at the game company revolted against the parent company saying, look, look, no, we're not doing this to our employees or we run the risk of just not having a company anymore. If everyone quits and leaves, I mean, we really drove them to the, the ground on this last project. And so the parent company uh, wound up relenting mm -hmm. and saying, OK, all right, all right, all right, all right. Take take the time you need to do it right without killing your employees. Um, but you're right. It, it was it was an empowering vehicle for the parent company to go, look, just because you've done this once. You can do it again. Right. And you made us all this money in such short order one time. We want more of that money. So do it again. And that's just not the way that the humans within the game company functioned. Yeah. Yeah. And and again, there's a couple things that I find really interesting about that. One of them is, I think, a false uh, belief that th there's this very clear relationship between scope and time and between outcomes and time. Um, and I think that there's a false uh, connection between those two things that you often see in the games industry and often see in technology where it's like, you need to do it in six months. Oh, we can't revolt. Okay. A year. All right. I think we can do that. And it's like, nobody's <laughs> talking about the value. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like where is, where is your prioritized list of all the things that are going to have an impact on your customers? And where are you cutting? on that list. Like the, I know the way these projects work. They're mostly defined projects with very specific scope 
and we're talking about whether or not we can smush that scope into a time frame that we find comfortable or not, right? And and to me, the mm-hmm. one the point I actually wanted to make on that is that to your to the story you just talked about, Chris, stress is a very back to back to what we're talking about about this reactive. Uh, operational management mindset versus leadership opportunity and value. The the former is something very associated with stress. I mean, just thinking about what are all the problems and which the ones do we fix first. That alone is a very stressful place to be. It's like look at all these problems. The ho- like the house is always on fire, right? Yeah. It's just like how like how much water do we have? Where should we shoot the water first? It, it's it's a stressful place to be. I've been there, and I think a lot of people in corporate America can relate to that. When you're just always fighting fires all the time, it's you're just constantly stressed out. It makes it like it almost doesn't even matter what you're working on at a certain point. If you get caught enough in those loops, work just becomes a very unpleasant, stressful place to be. And I feel like stress in corporate America is like part baked into the cake almost. It's like it's a mean almost nowadays that you're that you're like if you're if you're working in like any sort of a white collar space you're going to be like have an inordinate amount of stress and probably be drinking too much coffee and all this stuff right um and again there's something about shifting more towards opportunity something about embracing uncertainty about embracing learning that is really really scary but i think it actually can break that pattern of reactivity and break that pattern of constantly feeling three steps behind the ball all the time, not even necessarily knowing what the hell the ball is. Right. And, and I think there's there's really something there that I think that is actually part of this global shift that we're trying to make in the way people think, where it's like we actually can live in proactivity and we can deal with things as they come up and as we're learning. We don't have to like try to plan and prepare and have everything handled all the time and deal with all that stress. So, yeah, Aaron, there's a really quick, Ben, there's a, a famous quote by Gil Emilio, who is the former CEO of Apple before Steve Jobs came back in 1997. And uh, Apple was doing really poorly, really poorly. Like they were just this close to going under. And when, when asked about it by the press, you know, here, this is getting back to Aaron's analogy of the, of the house or the ship or whatever, you know, um, he said, well, it's like we're a giant cruise ship in the middle of the ocean and we're taking on a lot of water. We've got to get that ship pointed in the right direction. And it's like, wait a minute. No, your house is sinking. It's filling with water, right? And all you're talking about is how can we shift the culture around to move in the right direction? And uh, basically Jobs got in there and blew the whole place up, so to speak. He sunk the ship entirely and started over. He just said, this is not the right house for us. We're going to go live over here instead and move the company over. Just to illustrate your point on houses there and what you were just talking about. Yeah. Aaron. Yeah. Build a different ship. There's. Yep, exactly. There's an analogy that's been popping into my head from my time in the military um, and de- deploying to Afghanistan. Uh, I was uh, in the logistics space for that and did a lot of uh, collecting stuff that would go overseas, putting it all in the right container figuring out which way it would go, whether that would be like, would it get flown over? Um, would it get flown over directly and securely? Uh, would it get sent by ship and uh, on containers? And then we had to make sure it was ready way in advance. Looks all this, there's a lot of different questions you're asking um, as, a, as a unit movement officer. And I was also the S4, so I was doing a lot of like, okay, contracts and figuring all this stuff out and tagging and labeling. And it's this giant system 
that's intended to take a bunch of stuff that we have and put it in Afghanistan where we're going to need it. Fascinatingly though, there's a bunch of stuff already in Afghanistan. Um, and we know, we know that like, it's not, you know, the, the military is a very, it's sort of like over time, it becomes this very intelligent entity, but it is all about maintaining all the existing structures. Like every, the, the, all of that whole process is this incredibly like SOP, like standard operating procedure out the wazoo. Everybody's trained in exactly what they're supposed to do and how this stuff is going to move. And it doesn't even enter anyone's mind while you're going through it. You're just following all the rules. You're just following all the guides. You're just following the people that have done this 17 times before uh, that are down at the rail yard or whatever, where, you know, you're going to put your stuff on a train to take it to the port, to take it to, you know, somewhere in overseas, and then it'll get on another train and then it'll get on a truck and then, you know, it'll end up there. Um, it is so common in the military. And I think of that example that you're not at all pondering, what are the opportunities here? How else like, what do we need to ship? What's the value of shipping any particular thing? Again, we're supposed to be thinking about that, but often it's just, no, we want, I mean, there were times where people were like, well, we just want our stuff. And I'm like, well, wait, do we need to? Because it's expensive. It's like, we don't care. We're putting our stuff on, we're sending it over. Um, and then we would get it there. And I, I'm not kidding. I think a lot of the stuff we shipped over there and we took all this work, we did all this thing. Everybody goes through this process every single time. Um, a bunch of it never moved out of those containers. Um, like some of it did, I mean, absolutely some of it did, but a lot of it, we actually like, we didn't need that. And for me, there's an opportunity for learning in there. But when we would try to learn about that stuff, when we would think about, well, what would we do differently? Our orientation was always, how do we better follow the existing system? How do we better comply with the SOPs? How do we, do we need to do this earlier? Do we need to make sure blah happens? And instead of going like, wait a minute, could we massively reduce how much we need to ship? Or are there different things we could we could do? Um, <laughs> there were times where we spent so much money uh, shipping something from stateside to Afghanistan. I'm not kidding. If we just like pre-ordered it as if we were in Afghanistan and had it shipped from a civilian company, it probably would have been cheaper and we would have had new stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> now, again, there's there's risks involved in that and all this different stuff, but like that was something where the risk aversion around that whole process was so high that it was, we're going to do it. We're going to do it all the same way we've always done it. Um, and we're not, we're, we're not really interested in shifting that. And, you know, there's part of me that says like, Hey, that's a rinse and repeat thing, right? We're going to Afghanistan. We've done it before. Everybody's done it. We know what we're doing. Let's just do the process. Um, but that lack of anybody really ever going, how could we do this better leads to how many years down the road where like suddenly none of this makes sense. Um, and, and I think that is, that is a disadvantage of the scale and scope of the military and how they operate is that so much of it is driven by tradition, SOPs, guidelines, field manuals, these things. Um, and we don't adjust enough. We don't go, where are the opportunities? What can we do? How do we do this differently? And that, that pervades, unfortunately, a lot of the units I was in. Um, all anybody was interested was solving problems. That's all anybody, like if you were a leader, you're solving problems, you're making things, you're making things go away. You're not unlocking things to be better. Um, and, and it's a, it's a missed 
It's a missed opportunity. It's a missed opportunity for the military, but it's risky. It's risky to enable people to seek opportunity. You may spend resources. You may unlock things that don't work out. Um, and, and in the end, that risk aversion and the high cost of failure um, that was perceived around a lot of these things meant that it was just not on the table. In the military, I, in a wartime situation, I, I can see maybe why that would. Yeah, I and mean, in a lot of ways, it makes sense. I don't want to overjudge it. No, 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 for sure. And that's that's not what I'm getting at. Now, now take that back to your time at Riot. You know, I I know that you guys have spoken in the past about you know a safe to fail environment, where not where sometimes if an opportunity is uncovered and someone does pursue it and they dig and they dig and they dig and they don't strike gold. Um, I guess my question is is that scenario acceptable to higher management? I think we've all been mm -hmm. trained to hear an opportunity. We hear, oh, opportunity. And in our minds, like we connect opportunity with success, which is not necessarily a bad association, but an opportunity doesn't, auto doesn't automatically mean success is guaranteed. Mm -hmm. It means you're gonna go strike out and see what you can find. You're gonna hit your, you know, Stick your shovel in the ground and dig and hope you strike gold. And if you do, great. If you don't, well, missed opportunity, but at least you tried. So was that okay within within the bounds of Riot or in, in your experiences in software development, knowing that uh, there's this kind of balance between safe to fail and, well, you got to get it done and move forward. And here's a missed opportunity versus, hey, we, 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 we dug and we struck gold and it was awesome. You know, where's the balance there? Is it okay with upper management if you take that risk and you don't? Strike gold? It, it depends. And the thing that came into my mind when you were talking is the more you're doing it, the more okay it is. Um, mm. Because mm -hmm. because what, what an opportunity, like to, to take an opportunity mindset is to fight the human urge for stability, comfort, and risk aversion. And de determinism. And determinism. And, and mm. you instead move into a world where you say, uh, you know, that scarcity abundance mindset you move into an abundance mindset and you say i think if we take 10 chances some of them are going to pay off and it's going to make it worth all the ones that didn't and there's so much truth in that like there is unbelievable truth in that especially as people learn to do this and build this into their um their way of working i'm, I'm going to bring up a specific example where i think we we did this when i was on that same uh summoner's rift update project and we were doing work as the creature team, we were trying to solve the old wraith camp. And uh, we the new ones weren't wraiths. They didn't fit thematically. We knew they were going to be some kind of animal. And we tried really hard to make this these um, little flapping, like flying birds work. But they hadn't worked. We couldn't solve it. Um, we tried really hard. Uh, and and it was just like, hey, we need, some, we need a different idea. We need something new. And we're getting later in the project. And we'd had some concept artists and we were trying to like go through the process, if that makes sense. But at, we also learned that, wait a minute, what if we work in this way that we worked when we were doing something called a Thunderdome, which is like a three day, get as much, you know, it was really two and a half days, um, try to get a big project done or, or a small project, depending on how many people you have in just three days and whatever's done is done. And so we took that approach and just said, Instead of trying to come up, have a concept artist come up with a perfect idea that we can then execute into reality, what if we just came up with dozens of ideas and then we saw which one, which one works the best? 
So don't worry about perfection in your concepting. And we had modelers doing concept work where they were actually like building out meshes, 3D meshes to put in the game and then they would paint over them really quick. Like everybody just put all guns on. Let's just produce tons of ideas. And I don't remember how many we generated. Um, It's funny, we didn't actually get the answer in the first round. But one of the concept artists saw everything that was done and saw what seemed promising and what didn't and generated an idea. And everybody was like, whoa, that's it. And there were these little like wingless birds. They're the vulture camp now in, in mm-hmm. League of Legends. Mm-hmm. I think they're still there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was through throwing a lot of stuff at a wall and seeing what stick, what sticks and what doesn't um, that we ended up in this place where we had, oh, that, that idea solves it. We could have kept trying one idea at a time. And so when I think about opportunity and opportunity framing, it is actually about not having a scarcity mindset, not having that risk aversion. It is to take the chances and recognize that if we take a lot of chances, over time, this will pay off, even if one does not. Because if you only ever take one risk and it fails a couple times in a row, you're never going to want to take risks again. But if you're constantly taking risks, yes, some of them are failing. Who cares? Some of them are succeeding and it's totally worth it. And that's where you want to be. Very cool. So today's conversation was pretty exploratory. And because these, these, the relationships between these things the concepts themselves are are pretty complex, but fundamentally what we're trying to understand and communicate about is the idea of getting trapped in the management and operational paradigm and the fundamental difference between leadership and management and the value of each respectively. Now, I know we talked a lot about the pitfalls of getting stuck in that operational, reactive, repairing mindset. One thing I want to be careful about is is to make sure that no one walks away from this thinking that those things are bad necessarily. Sometimes we do have to repair. Sometimes we do have to ma- management is a very valuable function. Mm, yeah. However, what we're trying to point out is that we oftentimes arrive in that place even when it's not appropriate, and even when that's not what we want, and when that doesn't serve the outcomes. So really what we're hoping this conversation serves is as a way to contextualize your situation and figure out where you wanna be and get a higher level conversation going about what's important at your organization. So uh, hopefully this was valuable for you and we really enjoyed this. We'll see you on the next episode of the Valarin Perspective. Over and out. This has been the Valarin Perspective. Send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. That's Valarin, V-A-L, A-R-I-N consulting.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.